We are going to be in Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2. We'll be in one verse tonight. <laughs> Miss Rita goes, hey, a short sermon. Well. <laughs> you forget, pastor uh, taught me how to preach. And he can preach an hour on just one word. And I like to preach, so we'll see how this goes. Uh, Amos chapter 2, and we're going to be in verse 13. And call the sermon, The Weight of God's Grace Bearing His Abundant Blessings. The Weight of God's Grace Bearing His Abundant Blessings. Brother Mike, it's still incredibly amazing to me to see how God's working. Um, as you was preaching from Joshua this morning, it's just incredible how your sermon this morning is going to dovetail with this one tonight. It, it, it's just like it, they just fit together like this, and it's just great. It's just crazy how all that works out. But it's like God knows what's going on. So, all right, if you're in Amos chapter two, stand with me while we read our verse, please. And uh, Amos chapter two, verse thirteen. The Bible says, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much. Um, again, Lord, just help us all to remember that this is not my message, that this is your message, and that, that you've uh, laid these things on my heart to, to give to the church. And I pray that you would move me out of the way, Lord, and just do that tonight. We love you, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you thank you. You may be seated. Um, <clears throat> tonight, the text is going to give us a mental picture of an overloaded grain cart. But before we do that, there's another uh, cart that I want to give you a picture of. And this cart is in a verse that I heard preached while I was studying for this message. And it's in uh, Psalm 68, 19. And I'm going to read that to you. Psalm 68, 19 says, Blessed be the Lord, who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation. Selah. Um, in his sermon, this preacher said he wanted to give us a picture of another type of a cart. Um, he said... The, this cart is a picture that God has loaded us with His grace and His blessings. He said, this is one picture of a loaded wagon that we should enjoy viewing as God is continually piling His grace on our cart. Amen. Well, last Wednesday night, uh, God had a message for us in Amos 2 and the passages, uh, verses were 6 through 16. And we saw in that passage that God sent Amos with His message to Israel. I'll mention it again and when it comes up. We might uh, mention it again later, but I just want you to know that in this Amos series, that when I say Amos said this and this and this, <clears throat> that God is the one really saying it. And, and so, sometimes instead of referring to Amos first, I'm just going to say God because this is his message. So Wednesday evening, we took a high-level Passover, verses 6 through 16, and we saw that Israel had a typical sinful pattern of behavior and God calls them out on it. And God said, Israel, even though I showed you an abundant grace, most of you have just sinned right back in my face. 
we learned that everyone, including us, has the same tendency to do that. Tonight we're going to look a little closer at that passage, but we're going to focus on verse 13. Verse 13 is kind of a, a summary statement for verses 6 through 12. Again, the verse says, Behold, I am pressed under you as, as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. The second loaded uh, cart in our passage tonight is a cart that we might not want to look at real close. We might want to push this cart off in the corner of the barn somewhere. But there's a problem with that. This cart bears such a tremendous load that it's unmovable. Sinful behavior and disobedience to God's commandments are displeasing to God and eventually have consequences for us. And remember, we can choose to be disobedient, but we don't get to choose the circumstances of that. The passage in verse 6 through 16 is a launching point that really will take us through the rest of the book of Amos. The rest of the book is just going to build on uh, some of these things that we, we see here in verses 6 through 9. <clears throat> I'm going to read those verses again. Because they sold the righteous for silver and the poor for a pair of shoes, that pan after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor, and turn aside the way of the meek. These sins of Israel speak of the wealthy oppressing the poor. A man and his father will go into the same maid and prof to profane my holy name. And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge at every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. This, these are the uh, sins of Israel. They speak of their idolatry. I'm not going to re-preach the passage tonight, but we are going to refer back to it. We're going to see that the nation of Israel uh, were people that responded wrongly to God's grace. They had received God's grace, His blessings, in a countless number of ways over and over throughout their history, but they continued to rebel against God and reject Him. Verses 9-11, through 11, God reminded Israel about His grace and His blessings. Yet I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you forty years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. And God said over and over throughout your lives, I've taken care of you. Then God asked them a question. Is it not even thus, O ye children of Israel? But God didn't let him answer. He answered for them. He said, but ye gave the Nazarites wine to drink, commanded the prophets, saying, prophesy not. Israel coerced the Nazarites to break their vows to God, and they commanded the prophets to stop telling them what God said. The Nazarites were people who took a vow to live a life of holiness and separation from the worldly influences around them. When someone took a Nazarite vow, they were making a promise to God, and the requirements of the vow were part of their dedication to this commitment. The Nazarites took vows to God abstaining from wine and strong drink as a symbol of purity and separation from the worldly pleasures around them. A Nazarite was not allowed to come in contact with dead bodies, even if those dead bodies were deceased uh, of very close relatives of theirs. This reflected the idea of, of avoiding impurity. A Nazarite was prohibited from cutting their hair during the period of their vow. This was for a visible outward sign of their consecration to God. Nazarites were to live in such a way as to point others to God. That kind of sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
Christians are to live their lives in such a way as to point others to Jesus. Israel was God's chosen nation called out to point other nations to God. And they were not doing that. Israel wanted to be like the other nations. They said so themselves in 1 Samuel 8, 5, Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Israel had God's grace, blessings, guidance, and laws. And they said, we don't want that. We want a king to rule over us. We don't want God. Well, by the way they were living, Israel said, we want our way. We want the other nation's ways. We do not want God's ways. By the way they were living, Israel was telling everyone, especially God, we are happy in our sinful ways and we choose to embrace them. Israel was living in exactly the opposite way that God wanted them to, which brings us to our verse tonight in Amos 2.13. God through Amos told Israel, Behold, I am pressed under you as a cart is pressed that's full of sheaves. God told Israel, You took my grace, you took my blessings, and you trampled them under, my, under your feet. God told them that you used my grace and you abused my good name, and I will have it no more. I listened to many sermons in this passage. I, I listened to sermons um, during the day like most people listen to a radio. I'm not bragging about that. It's just what I like to do. I'm blessed to be able to do that. So I'm going to quote uh, what one of the preachers said in one of those sermons I listened to. And he said, One thing that is clear throughout God's Word and especially clear in the Old Testament is that the Lord is really greatly concerned about His name. He is greatly concerned about His reputation, about His honor, and about His glory. Instead of bringing honor to the Lord and honor to the Lord's name among the nations and the greatness of their God, which is the very reason that God called the people of Israel out from among the nations in the first place. Instead of doing that, the people of Israel are bringing disrepute and shame upon the name of the Lord by their oppression of others, by their idolatry, and by their rejection of Him. And as we heard in Brother Mike's message this morning, God's name is very, very important to Him. His reputation is very important to Him. Listen to these verses. I'm going to read to you. The first one is in Ezekiel 20, verse 9. And the Bible says... But I wrought for my name's sake that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom ye were in whose sight I made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. In Ezekiel 36.22 verses, or excuse me, Ezekiel 36 verses 22 and 23. I'm going to get there in just a second. Ezekiel 36, 23, the Bible says, Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whether ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. 
the Bible says in Isaiah 48, chapter 9, or excuse me, Isaiah chapter 48, verse 9. For my name's sake will I defer mine anger, and for my praise will I refrain for thee, that I cut thee not off. The third of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 27. Thou shalt not take the name of thy Lord, of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. God's name is to be treated with the utmost respect and reverence. Misusing or dishonoring God's name is a serious matter. The Bible says in Leviticus 24, uh, verses 10 through 16, I'm not going to read that. I'm just going to tell you about it. In this passage, a man of Israel was found blaspheming the name of the Lord. And as a result, he was brought before Moses and the congregation. The Lord, God Himself, commanded that the one who had blasphemed His name should be stoned to death. The severe punishment, this severe punishment shows us the gravity of using God's name in a profane or disrespectful manner. It's a blessing that God chooses to, to defer His anger for His name's sake. Because if God still had people stoned to death today for using His name in vain, we'd be out of stones and there'd be a lot of piled up bodies. I don't intend to be dramatic about that. It's just the truth. Uh, verse 13 says again, um, starts with the word behold. Behold means to fix the eyes upon, to see with attention. To observe with care. Observe what? Well, observe what God said about Israel in verses 6 through 12. Their oppression of others, their idolatry, and their rejection of Him. God told Israel, Behold, because you did these things, I'm pressed under you like a heavy cart is pressed by your harvest. Pressed means to squeeze or to crush or to press like you're pressing grapes. Now church, before we go any farther with this text, I want to be very, very clear about this. No one or nothing in any way whatsoever can press God. God can't be pressed or depressed or oppressed or any other kind of pressed, especially by man. Simplistically, the only thing that man can do to God, uh, do is please God or displease God. So... Uh, so we understand this. Amos is using an illustration for Israel, one that they fully understood and they needed no more clarification for it. They, they understood what Amos was saying. He gave them an image of a cart that was severely overloaded and pressed under the weight of their grain stalks. It meant that the cart could no longer hold any more weight and was being crushed like a grape. Amos painted a picture for Israel. Israel, your sins are piled so high that is a crushing weight on God. Well, God is displeased with Israel, and He's using this illustration of a crushed cart to show them a picture of their sins. God's telling them that their sins are piled upon their sins, are piled upon their sins, and they're crushing Him, causing Him uh, grief. The Bible says in Isaiah 63.10, But they rebelled and vexed His Holy Spirit. Therefore He was turned to be their enemy, and He fought against them. Well, since uh, I took this verse from a larger pa passage, I'm going to replace the pronouns and the nouns, and that will make more sense. 
But Israel rebelled and vexed God's Holy Spirit. Therefore God was turned to be Israel's enemy, and God fought against Israel. God was so displeased at this time with Israel that He considered them His enemy and He fought against them. Amos 2.6 says, Thus saith the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. Well, God is displeased with Israel again. God told them that uh, judgment and punishment is coming to you and I'm not going to do anything to change my mind. Israel was God's chosen people. He set them apart for a particular purpose to show the other nations who the God of Israel was. But Israel rebelled against God. This concept of being displeased with Israel is clearly understood throughout the text of the Bible. It's a timeless truth, and Israel is a symbol of God's called out people. This means the concept of God being displeased with His called out people applies to Christians today, right? But, uh, Brother Tim, Israel was rebelling against God. I'm doing pretty good. I'm, I'm not really rebelling against them. Well, that's awesome. Praise the Lord. But let's look at uh, some of the ways that God says people do rebel. Let's start with biblical standards. Who sets the standards that we live by? Do we set them or does God? I think we all know the answer to that. God sets the standards. The Bible is the ultimate authority in matters of faith and practice. The Bible provides clear and unchanging standards. God's standards. God's standards are His moral and ethical principles, commandments, and teachings found in the holy, infallible, inherent, preserved Word of God, our King James Bible. These standards are God's unchanging guidelines on how individuals should live their lives in a relationship to Him and then a relationship to others. Let's look at a few of them. The Ten Commandments. These are foundational moral principles found in the Old Testament. That's in Exodus 20. They include commands such as not committing murder, not stealing, not bearing false witness. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus emphasized these as the greatest commandments in the New Testament, Matthew 22. They tell of loving God with all one's heart and loving one's neighbor as their self. Forgiveness and repentance. The Bible teaches the importance of forgiveness and repentance, both in terms of seeking God's forgiveness for one's sins and forgiving others who have wronged you. That's in uh, Luke chapter 17. Relationship uh, and morality. Adults, you, you know what I mean. The Bible provides guidelines on these relationships and conduct, marital fidelity and other immoralities that the Bible describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Honesty and integrity. Truthfulness, honesty and integrity. This includes not lying, not bearing false witnesses, and being truthful in all our dealings. That's in Ephesians chapter 4. Compassion and charity. Christians are encouraged to show compassion and charity towards those in need, following the example of Jesus' teachings and actions in Matthew 25. Respect for authority. The Bible teaches respect for civilian authorities in Romans 13 and for spiritual leaders within the church in Hebrews 13. The avoidance of idolatry. 
The Bible strictly forbids the worship of idols or other gods and strongly teaches exclusive devotion to the one true God. And you can see we can read about that in Exodus chapter 20. These are just some of God's unchanging standards from the Bible, and they serve as a guide for how God desires for Christians, which is you and me if you're saved, to live. But people mess that up, don't they? King Solomon said it like this, Ecclesiastes 7, verse 29. Lo, this only have I found, that God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. King Solomon was the wisest man in the Bible. He was the wisest man to ever walk on the planet Earth besides Jesus. And he wrote this because he was inspired by God. Ecclesiastes was written as a description of the human condition and a search for a meaning in life. Solomon's observation here about human nature is that despite God's creation, humans often seek their own ways and their own inventions. Man's nature, our nature, your and my nature, is to change God's standards. And how is that? Well, just like Brother Mike preached this morning, one little itty-bitty word, and it's called sin. Sin is doing what we want, and not what doing what God wants. Again, Brother Mike made it very clear in his sermon this morning, sin separates us from God. All humans are born with a sinful nature inherited from Adam and Eve. Romans 5.12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered to the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. This verse, referring to the sin of Adam, states that through Adam's disobedience, sin entered the world, and as a result, all humanity, including us here tonight, has inherited a sinful nature. All humans are born with the inherited sinful inclination and are in need of redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. This inherent sinfulness means that people fall short of God's perfect standards. Very common verse, Romans 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. When people engage in sinful behavior and turn away from God's commands, He is displeased with them. We have heard from Solomon about this. Listen to what King David, James, John, and Isaiah have to say about it. Psalm 51.4 Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. In this verse, King David acknowledges that his sinful actions are ultimately offenses against God. James 4.17 Therefore to him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. This is the importance of obeying God's command, and failing to do so is considered sinful. If you know what God wants you to do, and you don't do it, that's sin. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. This verse defines sin as a violation of God's laws or commandments. Isaiah 59, 2, But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you, that He will not hear. This verse says that sin creates a separation between humans and God, and hinders communication with Him. 
Isaiah 59.2 is a powerful verse. I want you to catch this. The Bible says that the relationship between our behavior, particularly sin, creates a barrier between us and God. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Iniquities or sins create a divide, separation between us and God. Iniquities refer to the wrongful actions or behaviors that go against God's moral standards. The verse is saying that when we engage in sinful behavior, it creates a gap between us and God. And your sins have hid His face from you. This is a vivid picture, brilliant color. When we commit sins, it's as if God's face is hidden from us. This imagery conveys a sense of God's turning away from those who persist in wrongdoing. That He will not hear. The verse goes further by explaining that due to the separation caused by sin, God will not listen to our prayers. It says that a sinful lifestyle will hinder effective communication with God. While God's displeasure with human sin is written all throughout the Bible, there is also just as much written on the hope of redemption through the faith in Jesus Christ. And God's displeasure with us, instead of calling a consuming fire on top of our heads, God calls us to Him for repentance. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore relationships. He wants a closeness. He wants us to know our hope in Him. I want that also. How do we do that? I'm glad you asked. I was hoping someone would. Ezekiel 18.30 Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions so iniquity shall not be your ruin. If there is something that you know God is speaking to you about that needs attention, repent. Is there something in your life that God wants you to get rid of? Repent. Maybe it's a contact on your phone. Repent. Maybe it's an app. Maybe it's a web page. Maybe it's an image. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a video game. Maybe it's a fill-in-the-blank. Repent. Repent. And restore communication with God. And then do what you know God wants you to do. If we will do that, Look what God says He will do in Psalm 32, verse 8. I, that's God, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Brother Josh, that's good stuff. This is God's promise to provide instruction and guidance to those who will seek Him. We need divine guidance to avoid falling into the trap of our self deception and sin. This encourages us to seek God's guidance and align our ways with His ways. We need God. And here's the awesome part. He wants us to. Brother Steve, I have no idea why God, the Creator of the universe, wants me. I don't know why He wanted anything to do with me, but one day He'd come knocking at my door. Just like Miss Misty saying this morning, I bowed my knee, and I bowed my heart, and I bowed my life to Him. 
भगवत गीता ब्रदर टिम यू डोंट नो वट आई डन नो आई डोंट नीड टू आई ओनली नीड टू टेल यू दैट गॉड नोज एंड ही लव यू एनी वे All you need to know is repent, 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 and God will turn back to God, and He's standing there waiting with His arms wide open. Repentance involves acknowledging our wrongdoing. God, will you please guide me on Your path to a relationship with You? God, You're right; I'm wrong. Will you please forgive me? Well, Brother Tim, I want to do that, but. Sometimes I can't tell the difference between Holy Spirit's conviction and uh, accusations from the devil. <clears throat> How do we tell the difference? Conviction or accusation? What's the difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the accusations of Satan? Conviction of the Holy Spirit as a deep sense of inner conviction or guidance. that believers experience as a result of the holy spirit's work in our life it's considered a positive and constructive influence aimed at drawing us closer to god and helping us to recognize our need for salvation repentance and growth in our relationship with god the holy spirit convicts people of their sin and righteousness and judgment <clears throat> the bible says in john 16:8 and when he that's the holy spirit when he has come he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment the holy spirit leads people to acknowledge their wrongdoing and turn to god to repent and seek his forgiveness the holy spirit leads you to god conviction by the holy spirit is often accompanied by a sense of peace and love and a desire to align your life with god's will The Holy Spirit will never convict you of going against what God wants you to do. Remember, Satan is the great accuser. He is a believer's adversary. His goal is to to discourage, deceive, and lead people away from God. Accusations of Satan involve uh, negative and condemning thoughts or feelings that arise in our minds. these accusations often focus on our per- on a person's shortcomings mistakes or sins excuse me unlike the holy spirit's conviction satan's accusations are meant to create doubt guilt and shame they're meant to uh, lead to feelings of despair and a sense of being unworthy of god's love and grace now we are knowingly and admittedly unworthy of these but our hope and our encouragement comes from the fact that god loves us anyway we're not to feel despair because we are unworthy that these accusations from the devil happen to all of us he's a roaring lion seeking to who he may devour was first peter 5:8 compare your thoughts and feelings to the teachings of the bible The Holy Spirit's conviction will align with biblical principles and lead you towards God. Spend time in prayer seeking God's guidance and discernment. Ask for clarity in distinguishing between the Holy Spirit's conviction 
and negative accusatory thoughts. Seek guidance from pastor. He wants to and he can help you, but he can't help you if you don't ask him. The Holy Spirit's conviction points to God's love and offers a path to redemption and reconciliation. Satan's accusations, on the other hand, tend to promote fear, guilt, and hopelessness. The ability to tell the difference between these will vary from person to person. And when these times come that it's hard to tell apart, just submit yourself to God and ask Him to help you resist the devil. The Bible says in James 4, 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This uh, verse is a broader part in the message in the book of James about the importance of humility and submission to God and resisting the temptations of the devil, but it is also good counsel here. Submit yourselves therefore to God. It means surrendering to God's will. It's what, it's what we have been talking about. If we are in God's will for our life, we are not in our will for our life. There's another call uh, for us to humble ourselves before God, acknowledging His authority and His will, and willingly, and willingly uh, yield to His guidance. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This encourages us to resist the devil's temptations and influences by staying firm in our faith, actively rejecting sinful behavior and thoughts. <clears throat> we can overcome the devil's schemes. When the devil encounters strong resistance, he will eventually depart or flee. This verse encourages us as believers to resist the devil's temptations. The Bible says so, so that makes it true. And I can testify because I have experienced this in my own life. Did you realize that the opposite of this is also true though? If we welcome the temptations of the devil, he'll be all too happy to give you all you want. The devil will be very, very happy to help you pile sin upon sin upon sin. The devil will be very happy to hand you stocks to put on your grain cart. The devil would be very help, happy to help you forget about James 4.7. The further away from God we get in sin, the happier the devil is. The further away we get from God in sin, the more displeased God is. We can choose to have the weight of God's grace in our cart, and we can be overloaded bearing the abundant blessings that He wants to give us. Or, we can keep piling stocks of grain in God's cart and we can trample His grace and we can trample His blessings. How, what's that look like? How do we trample God's grace and trample God's blessings? Well, remember the three things that Israel did? Oppression of others, idolatry, and re their rejection of God. Yeah, but Brother Tim, I'm not doing any of those things. That's very good. Praise the Lord for that. But uh, I just ask you to let me show you an example of what those things are so that we can help avoid them in the future. Fellowship here at Valley Avenue Baptist Church is a blessing and I'm really, really happy to be part of it. I'm not saying this happens here. I'm not saying it has happened here. God gives us these things as warnings, as preventative measures. 
Many of us gather together in our groups and we're comfortable with each other and it's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. Suppose, however, though, someone different wants to start joining in the group and maybe someone in that group already uh, doesn't have maybe the right spirit about that. Maybe they really don't want anyone else to join in their group. Maybe they'll put a fake smile on their face when someone does, but they know in their heart, and so does God, that they really don't want anyone else to join in. Proverbs uh, four seven or excuse me fourteen twenty one says, "He that despiseth his neighbor sinneth." Well, God calls that oppression to others. Well, idolatry is the second thing mentioned. Now, I know that we probably all don't have images, golden calves and those things like our, at our house. Idolatry is defined as worship of idols, images, or anything made by hands or which is not God. Idolatry is two kinds. Of two, I, the, idolatry is of two kinds. The worship of images, statues, pictures, etc. made by hands and the worship of heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, demons, angels, men, and animals, and such. But there's a second definition of idolatry. It is excessive attachment or veneration for anything or that which borders on adoration. Simply put, excessive attachment to something. TV, cell phones, video games, social media, None of these are necessarily bad things until they become more important than God. Can't go to church tonight. The big game's on. Can't read my Bible. I don't have time. Exodus 23. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Put first, put God first, put God first in all of our thoughts, in all of our actions, in all of our decisions. God says if we don't do that, it's idolatry. The third thing mentioned is the rejection of God. Brother Mike, this just is amazing how all this ties together from this, the sermon this morning. I never, Brother Mike and I never one time ever got together and asked what, what each other was preaching about. Brother Mike preached this morning about the sin that we might have trying to hide from God. He showed us from the Bible that sin keeps God from going with us and helping us. And God's going to take that just a little bit further tonight. God says if we choose not to do what, what we know that He wants us to do, that we're rejecting Him. Rejecting God is rebelling against God. Remember this verse, Isaiah 63.10, But Israel rebelled and vexed God's Holy Spirit. Therefore God was turned to be Israel's enemy and fought against Israel. Remember Israel is a picture of God's called out people. Remember, Christians are also God's called out people. Excuse me, Isaiah 63.10. Again, but Christians rebelled 
and vexed God's Holy Spirit. Therefore, God was turned to be Christians' enemy, and God fought against Christians. Tonight, if you have unconfessed sin, not only is God not helping you, God's fighting against you. I don't know about you, but I don't want I, I don't want God fighting against me. I want God going with me. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much, Lord, for this church. Thank you for my church family. Lord, thank you for this message. I don't know, Lord, anything about anybody's sin in this room except mine. And Lord, you know my heart. I ask you to search me every day, a hundred times a day. Lord, I'm going to ask you one more time. Search my heart. Try my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me, Lord. And if there is, please show it to me. Lead me into the way of everlasting. Lord, I pray that each person here tonight and those who hear this message will pray that same prayer. And if or when you reveal anything to them, Lord, I pray that you will work in their heart and you will lead them to the altar and help them get it right with you. Because, Lord, we don't need you as an enemy against us. We need you with us. We love you, Lord, and I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.